Hey there, banditos. Thank you for joining us and coming back to another episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits on this Wednesday, December 7th. I am Joe Marcello. I'm Warren Phillips. I'm Mike Farah. And today we're bringing you yet another interview of awesomeness. But more than that, it's an Orin only episode. So what can I say? It's just great guests and Orin all by himself. Oh my god. And yeah, it, it's great. When and are I, the we, t-shirts coming? <laughs> Orin only. Uh, so we're bringing you our interview with Mike Gold. Mike Gold's career is full of firsts. He was the first PR person uh, for the comic book industry as it pertains to DC Comics. Uh, he was also the co-creator of First Comics. Yes, and at first he was the editor for John Sable Freelance, uh, my favorite book, so I spoke to him a lot about that. It was so cool to hear his experience and what it was like working with uh, Mike Grell on that series. Yeah, a lot of great books at first and also edited uh, quite a bit at DC. And one of the interesting little factoids is that he was the editor for the Impact line of comics, which was kind of a uh, pocket universe almost uh, within DC in the early 90s, where they introduced uh, some new characters and uh, tried to get some new readers as a result. I really liked it. I know Oren did too, and I'm, I'm sure Joe does as well. Uh, so we'll hear about all that and more with Mike Gold. Mike Gold, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak to us. A huge, huge fan. Uh, first question that we ask everybody, how did you get into comic books? Long story. All right. But I was precocious as hell. My sister was seven years older than me, which meant that she would be drafted to be my babysitter, which she was not happy about at all. But she was a comics fan. She was also a very early rock and roll fan. So I grew up with rock and roll and comic books in the house, which made me the man I am today. <laughs> and uh, she would read me. I remember I, I like she thought that Mutt and Jeff would be a good a good place to start because I was just a little kid, like three. And I learned how to read from her reading me those comics. And then I discovered that, look, they're in the newspaper. And I I started reading the newspaper. So I was just the most precocious little bastard you ever met. <laughs> you know, because I could sit there and talk about what President Eisenhower was doing. Mm -hmm. And and like five-year-olds, they're not supposed to do that. <laughs> but the comic book part and the rock and roll part, and I guess the politics part, have all stuck with me. Mm -hmm. So I have been reading comics ever since. My sister, God bless her, had a stash of old comics. So I even got to read like early 50s, really early 50s comics, a few, quite a few. Right. Um, at a point in time when, you know, there were no comic shops, of course, and, and it was just, it was just a, a wonderful thing to be turned on to because it, it, I was the perfect age for it. My sense of wonder was expanding. Mm -hmm. And comics really helped guide my path in terms of this sort of surreal expansionist view of the world. Uh, and I, 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 I'm grateful for that. 
my my sister died about two three years ago and um you know okay i mean that makes sense she's seven years old but um she can never understand why i said if, if, if not for you i would not have a career i would not have these careers the ones that i have now you know i, I mean i might have been doing something like curing cancer or something but no 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 i'm doing comic books fine <laughs> so how did you tell yourself okay this was a career i wanted to pursue i never did um that's a good question i was always a comics fan and i was one of the organizers of the uh, original chicago comic-con which was the first show was in 1976. I think we started working on it in 74, certainly 75. Um, and I was doing some sort of business consulting with a couple of the comics retailers because that was when the direct sale thing was starting to happen. And in those days, and pretty much today, a comics retailer knows how to run a store, a good one, but doesn't have necessarily a lot of experience doing the other stuff you know i mean do you realize that by ordering non-returnable you're committing a payment of certain amount of stuff and you're going to make that payment at least in the beginning before you get any of the money back so you're going to need that you can have these cash flow problems that sort of thing um and i was enjoying it because these guys are my friends um what happened was I was doing a project called National One-Way Switchboard. I've done a lot of youth services, youth social services work, drug abuse education, this runaway program, and several other things. Head started, um, very politically active. And among the work that I had done in setting up the, helping set up the National One-Way Switchboard, um, was obviously was to promote the, the service and a magazine being published by Scholastic, their editors called me up and said, hey, let's do a survey. And we did that. We had a great time. We just we just had a fabulous time doing this story. Um, I, I'm guessing I was flirting like a son of a bitch, but it, it didn't matter. You know, I do that. I'm doing that with you. <laughs> and, uh, she mentioned it in great detail to her boss, who was Jeanette Kahn. And Jeanette got a, a hold of me to thank me for the, for the piece, when, you know, when it came out. And we developed a friendship. And she began to understand my background, which is great because most people don't. And <laughs> it's complicated. It, it seems linear to me, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And we we talked comics back and forth. And one day, this is now January, February, nineteen seventy six. She's made publisher at DC Comics. So I call her up and said, "You know, congratulations." She knew about my interest in comics. I knew about hers, and I invited her to be our co guest of honor along with Stan Lee and Harvey Kurtzman at our first Chicago Comic-Con. And, you know, she accepted. 
we had these sort of twice a week telephone conversations. They would last forever. And, and we talked about everything. So one day she calls me up and she says, there's a job opening, but uh, over at Neil Adams studio, continuity association. And I knew that Dick, had, Dick Giordano had left continuity. And I, I pretty much had the idea that I didn't really want to work for, for Neil, for Neil Adams. Nothing wrong. I mean, Neil, brilliant. I mean, maybe not the best businessman in the world, but he was damn good at it. He made a lot of money at it and did a lot of good work. So who am I to bitch? But, you know, he had a very strong personality in order to do all this, which is fine. That's what it takes often in creative fields. So I have no problem with that. It's just that um, I don't like bureaucracy. Which means that the story is going to have a very sad ending. And she said, "Why don't you fly out here? I was living in Chicago. Why don't you fly out here, and um, we'll have dinner or we'll have lunch with Neil, and we'll talk about it. And I'll give you a tour of GC. What? Hell? What? Yes? Hmm? What? <laughs> okay. Now I knew Neil because by that point he had been working with uh, with Stuart Gordon." The director, the reanimator, and things like that. But he was he was a stage director doing warp and doing bleacher bums and eon and all kinds of brilliant, brilliant stage productions, really bizarre stuff. And Neil was going to do some artwork, did do some artwork actually for the Broadway version of, of the warp plays. So he came out to Chicago to see the plays and to talk with it. And uh, that's where I met him because I was a regular at the Mechanic Theater Company, which is the name of the organization. And and you know, it was nice. It was cool meeting Neil, and I'd seen him at conventions, things like that. We we had conversations, but I really didn't go out there to to take that job. It wasn't very creative. It was it was a very management oriented job, and uh, that just wasn't where I was at that moment in my life. However, I was, as they say in the business between jobs on radio um, because back in the 70s radio stations were supposed to be profitable and they would change their formats about every 20 minutes so you, you really couldn't make a long-term commitment to you know they don't put your name up in the parking lot <laughs> All right. <laughs> Whomever. <laughs> okay. Great. So I was between radio jobs. And, you know, I loved the tour of DC because a little fanboy heart was just going somebody felt. I mean, I had a wonderful time. And of course, by this point, Jeanette was was quite a friend. And I I had known a few writers and artists, but I had met these editors whose work I grew up on, starting with Julie Schwartz which is this, really as far as you need to go, but I met all the others too, right? And, and you know, I thanked Jeanette at the end because I had a wonderful time, but Neil didn't show up for the lunch. Which is funny because I came in from Chicago and I did. <laughs> but, okay, that happens. Um, 
Jeanette and I sat at the 21 Club, which was a very, fam- a very famous club right across the street from D.C., which was known for having these, these lawn jockeys, these 21 lawn jockeys. Um, and when they had to remove them for aesthetic reasons, uh, they, uh, uh, they, they went out of business. Quite frankly, they survived. They survived prohibition, but they couldn't survive that. Uh, okay, that's what happens. And um, and we had this three-hour lunch conversation, and we were both very passionate about it because we bring out each other's passions. And she had just pretty much just taken the job at DC six months, so we're talking comic books aggressively. Very, very important to us. And all these businessmen, this is long before you know the first Superman movie. Well, it's two years before the first Superman movie, which was the beginning of, of the medium being taken seriously. So all these businessmen at the 21 Club were sitting around us. I think they were scared shitless. It's like these two adults, I mean, I was still sort of hippie, but these two adults are batshit. <laughs> oh, yeah, we are. Fine. Deal with it. Wonderful conversation. Had the tour at DC. Got on the plane. Flew home. Having had a fabulous day. She calls me up the next morning. She says, you know, I've been thinking it over. And I don't want you to take this job with Neil. Which I did not say. Yeah, I wasn't planning on it anyway. Because, you know, it seemed really she said, I want you to work for me. I said, whoa, what? See what? <laughs> what? Um, I mean, I, I'd spent an enormous amount of time in New York City. Anybody in the media business certainly did, certainly in those days. Um, and I liked New York. Uh, it wasn't a goal to live there, but, I, you know, it was fine. But to work in the comics business, to work at D.C., and to do something that really had never been done before, because I was doing promotion work and doing um, the direct sales promotion work. So I was kind of like their first marketing director, kind of. Um, And that was very interesting because I was working with editorial on how to make DC's books in the mid-70s appeal more to the burgeoning direct sales market comic book stories um so i got to i got got to work in editorial with editorial now i have a strong editorial background but not in comics i brought my my journalistic background into the work um which was interesting because most editors don't have any training at all there's no training for a comic book editor which is a shame now they won't do it because they don't want to give those people the power. Not a problem for me a couple of years later when I went back to D.C. as, as a senior editor because um, uh, I'm an authoritarian little mother and, and that's what I do. So, <laughs> reference my note about bureaucracy. Um, I'm the out-of-the-box guy. And I know by this point, and, and now I'm referring to, we're jumping ahead to 86 when I went back to D.C., January 86, after first comments. Um, I, I knew that that's, uh, 
the out-of-the-box guy is only valuable to corporate America until you don't need the out-of-the-box thinking because the out-of-the-box thinking was successful. So you revert back to the way you were before, slowly but surely, and, and all of the gains that you made previously kind of dissipate over the years. Um, and that's that's a very sad experience. But I figured, hey, you know, five years, let's see what I can do. And uh, I stayed seven years, for six of which were great fun. And the last year was just winding up. You know, I, somebody said, back from Warner Publishing, said I'd spent a whole year packing my parachute. And I had to agree with that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. Giordano and I left at almost the same time. We had a whole deal worked out. <laughs> and uh, and I was doing, I was already planning on doing this other thing. And um, Dick knew about it because I told him, and he was going to do a graphic novel for it. Now, we, we didn't do any of that work while either of us were at DC. Mm. Um, just because, you know, lawyers make enough money. And uh, good lawyers make enough money. And, and uh, that's fine. So I get to DC, and we're now in 1986. And Dick, based on my work at, at First Comics, Dick, Dick says to me, what we really want is, it would be great if you could bring some of the folks you worked with over at First Comics. And I said, oh, you mean the way they hired you? When you were at Charlton and you brought all those people with you? And Dick laughed his ass off and said, yes. Now, the place where we had this conversation was up here in Connecticut, where I live now. Not far from where I'm, a mile and a half away from where I'm, I'm sitting right now. And it was a bar that all of the cartoonists would go to on Wednesdays to deliver their artwork to the courier they hired, who would take it into this, get on the train, take it into the city, while the other guys just sat around and got drunk around 10 in the morning. <laughs> and we were sitting at that bar when he when we were having this conversation. He told me that. I thought, oh, that's really well played. <laughs> that's really well played. And then he tells me that that um Erwin Donenfeld who was this who was publisher of DC and editorial director in the 50s and succeeded his father uh his office his he, he when he sold the company he, he started up like a boating supplies company or something it was about a block away I thought oh that's kind of cool I, I wound up meeting him and having lunch with him and stuff several times after that so the whole fanboy thing just keeps on being fed. So I take the job that he offered me. Um, I said, yeah, I like working with my friends. Don't worry about that part. Um, particularly since I knew my friends were frustrated with first comics for the same reasons why I was. The, the distributors were going out of business. They owed all the smaller publishers by smaller and smaller than DC and Marvel, <laughs> which had 75% of the market. So, you know, we were pretty small. But still, we were making an impact, and we were changing policies. So it was an important thing. It was an important moment. Um, we, we, uh, you know, I just, I, he knew that I didn't like working in a bureaucratic environment. And having worked at Warner Communications, 
before. And at DC, which was part of Warner Communications, I knew that was about as bureaucratic a place as you can. But the salvation was that nobody cared. You couldn't even find DC Comics in their annual report back in pre-Christopher Reeve days. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I thought I could I could probably get through this. But he wanted me to change everything to, to really kick ass. Why the other? So, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm bringing in my buddies, you know, Grell and Truman and Ostrander. Ostrander was the first one that brought over. Uh, and Chaikin, who it was a big return. He did not, he wasn't thrilled with the idea of working for City. Nor was Mike, Mike Grell, because he got into trouble with one of their executives the first time around. And now that executive was publisher. So he thought it wasn't going to work. And I said, but no, you're not working for them. You're, you're working with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can do that. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. I really don't like the company. What do you got in mind? And I said, okay, I do have a project. I would like you to take over Green Arrow. He says, Green Arrow, he had done it before. He'd follow the Aladdin's. <laughs> All roads need to uh, <laughs> And uh, which seems fair for some reason. So he said, Green Arrow. I says, Yeah. He says, Wow, I did that before. I like the character. It's a good character, but I don't know if I really want to do that. And I said, Well, I've got a starting point. I said, He says, Yeah, what's that? You may have to bleep this. I said, <laughs> Uh, Urban Hunter and Mike with long pause. And Mike goes, You motherfucker. <laughs> so that was a small triumph. You hooked him. <laughs> I'll be on a panel in a couple of weeks in Baltimore with Mike and uh, Tom King, who's just brought the Warlord back to DC. And uh, in continuity, Warlord wants to join the Justice League. And Mike has had always kept the Warlord outside of the DC universe. He realizes he doesn't own characters. That's not the problem. Right. But, you know, it's not something that he would ever do. Mm -hmm. So I, I mentioned this to um, Bob Harrison, who's a friend of mine who works with the Pop Culture Squad, and this is a brilliant, wonderful guy. He hosts a lot of panels. And I said, and he's a friend of Tom's. I've, I've met Tom a few times, I don't really know him them. And I said, well, you know, the girl's kind of up in arms about this, but just personally up in arms. So let's do a panel. <laughs> so we're doing the Tom King, Mike Grell panel. We're calling it the King Grell panel. <laughs> It'll be the end of this month. And I'm looking forward to it like you wouldn't believe. So that's sort of how I got into the comics business. Yeah. I never stopped my political work. And quite frankly, my work at DC, both in the 70s and, and when I came back in the 80s and 90s, helped subsidize that. So... I was happy as a clan because I'm, I'm doing everything that I enjoy doing, except radio. 
Uh, I had to wait for the internet to come along before I went back to radio. I did an internet radio show for like nine years. But um, uh, I was I was happy as a clown. I'm doing everything that I want to do in life. That's all you can ask for. Yeah, oh, it really is. <laughs> I, I, I'm the luckiest son of a bitch in the world. That's awesome. Uh, you know, if you just keep what you want and what you are good at and what makes you happy, you keep that in mind and you work towards that, it's like eating a sandwich. <laughs> you know, it really is. So I'm very happy. I'm very, I look back on all this stuff and I'm still doing a little bit of work in comics. Uh, probably would be doing a little bit more if not for the whole COVID thing, which just obviously stopped everything. Right. Uh, and, you know, I've moved on to the sort of elder statesman role. Not as good at it as Paul Evans, uh, who's made a third career out of that. And, and he's doing a wonderful job, as she points out. And, um, Happy, you know. We every once in a while we talk about doing a project. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while I talk about, well, maybe we can raise a couple of million dollars and do something here, which is easy to say. <laughs> that is part of my life. Actually, getting around to doing that part, not as attractive. <laughs> not as attractive because people don't pony up money because you know they like a T-shirt. Right. And I do like your t-shirt. How's it gonna <laughs> <laughs> my favorite Marvel character? And uh, you know, they give you money with contracts and with bureaucracy, and then then they don't honor their end of the contract. So and a lot of lawyers and stuff, but uh, you know, I've done all that, done it a lot. I don't need to really go out of my way to do that again. But if there's a really cool project. Mm-hmm. With some good people, and I'm more oddly enough, I'm more interested in working with new, younger talent right. than geriatrics. I've always worked with. <laughs> uh, you know, I would take it up. I would probably take it up if I thought you know it had a chance of succeeding. Right. I want to jump back to um, start off at DC and you're doing the PR. Uh, you know, Marvel at the time, they had Stanley doing interviews left and right, you know, love talking to the camera. Did the- Stan saved the industry. He's a very controversial guy, and I agree with all, but not all of it because some of it's bullshit. But I agree with the, the truth parts, you know. I mean, no, no person is perfect, and creators have a creative ego. And even if it's a small company, which Marvel was <laughs> pretty much up until Disney, um, you, you know, it takes a, a, a big ego to push that stuff through the system. But Stan was up there on TV talk shows, on Dick Havid and Merv Griffin and all the guys who were around back in the 70s, after the Batman TV show was over, was over but before the Superman and he was making comics cool on college campuses, which was the first thing that broke out of the whole imagery of comics are for kids. Um, by the way, comics should be for kids. Right. We, 
<laughs> we have ignored this audience way too long. And who's going to buy this stuff 10 years from now, 20 years from now? You know, right now we're living on the fact that parents who are comic book readers are shoving it down their kids' throats. <laughs> and the movies and stuff, that helps. But it's not a big deal. Uh, you know, not like the Batman TV show where all of a sudden Batman was selling millions of copies. Right. You know, and, and, and it raised the water for everybody else. You know, Tower Comics was in business and Archie dragged out their characters. and uh, You know, Marvel really made the best of it. Uh, by by flimflam in DC with this forty eight page format, and Marvel wound up uh, taking over as as the industry leader, and that was all Stan. I mean, I'm not saying Martin Goodman didn't make some of those decisions and so, but promoting it, getting people excited about it, going on television, talking to talent, bringing in talent, getting Jack Kirby back, things like that. Um, that made the comic book business that kept us in business because all of the places where you could buy comics were going into business. Comics were not, and still aren't really, um, expensive enough to generate any real income for you know a tour for a, a big uh, department store for a. You know, like Walmart or something like that. It's it's if you're in a mall, you're paying rent by the amount of profit you make per square foot, which is why the comic spinner rack takes a square foot. <laughs> um, and they were going out of business. You know, newsstands were, were were dying. I mean, there were a few in New York, a few in the big cities, big eastern cities. Right. Couldn't find them in California, or very few. Um, there was no place to really buy comics. You didn't fall across it. It's not something that kids could normally experience as part of their routine day. And the comic book shops in those days were just selling back issues, and there weren't that many of them. And they were in pretty skeevy neighborhoods, by the way. Um, some of my favorite neighborhoods. <laughs> but pretty skeevy nonetheless. And I I strongly, I firmly believe that if not for Stan, the whole thing would have gone away. So we owe him for that, if nothing else. And we owe him for a lot of other history. So that's my Stan Lee story. <laughs> Is that, I was going to say, do you think... DC not having a figurehead like that hurt them. And while you were there, was there ever any thought as to try to push somebody into the spotlight to maybe take that kind of position? No, because it would be transparent. Like, oh, that guy's trying to be Stanley. Or Jeanette is trying to be Stanley, which uh, wasn't possible. They were good friends, actually. So that was an interesting experience. But but um, no, I don't think the personality way was doing that. I think the best bet was to help take advantage of what Stan was doing for the industry. Um, and he was in favor of that because he didn't think we were ripping him off or anything like that. Or getting, I mean, really, we were just taking a seat on his bus. Um, because 
the better the industry is doing, the better Marvel is doing, the better he is doing. You know, he's very smart in that respect. This is a Jack Penny philosophy. Where you let other people get the jokes because it's your name on the show. Right. So I I didn't go that route. Mm. Uh, I thought that both in the 70s, particularly in the 70s, I thought like the way to do it was to break DC out of its 1960s mentality. Most of the editors there um, were, were, were there 20 years earlier. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, except for the fact that they were producing comics for 8-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds. And, and, and we, the market had changed. The market had aged. And older readers wanted more deeper stories and more continuity and, and more substance. Also because, and better art, because, you know, their parents would go like, you're 17, what the hell are you doing reading comic books? Just, well, look at this. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that the changing the editorial content or, or helping it change um, because the younger people, you know, the Denny O'Neills and the Larry Hamas, who became editors during that period of time, and, and Archie had been, been very active for a while at that point, but that generation of, of talent wanted to do the same thing. But some of them didn't quite have the, uh, the mentality of looking at this as a revolution and the bureaucrats be damned, which is probably on my business card. <laughs> you know? So, you know, we, 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 we had a pretty good time helping DC catch up. It wasn't quite, we didn't hit 1978 and 1978, but we were getting closer and we were out of 1964. I mean, I swear, DC in those days was just a heartbeat away from going back to go-go checks. <laughs> wow. So, uh, I mean, some of it was very sad. I mean, I mean, you know, if you're going to go and revamp the company or make it a little bit more consumer-friendly to today's consumer, it means that, you know, you're probably going to put another artist on Superman, for example. Let's start there, because that's the best thing. Superman. Right. Um, Kirk was wonderful and wonderful um, and a phenomenal superman and a phenomenal artist in every respect, but it was very dated. Jeanette wanted to change him to change artists back in the 70s. Uh, she didn't get a lot of support from the staff because, like, you can't put these guys out on the street. The deal was if you made your deadlines and didn't you know, relatively good work, you got a job for life. Well, we, you don't want to screw these people. Well, they made, they put you where you are today. Um, and she would have been successful if Garcia Lopez or John Buscema wanted to take over Superman. John was just negotiating with DC in order to drive his page rate up at, at home. Um, Garcia just didn't like doing superheroes. Jose. Yeah. Just didn't like doing superheroes. I mean, if there wasn't a, a, a horse in it, he wasn't happy. 
<laughs> and he's a wonderful guy and a phenomenal artist. And he did do a lot of Superman work. And, and all of it was great. But I'm Marxism. Just as you wouldn't use Wayne Boring, who was a Superman artist I grew up with in my precocious days. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, that was, that's a very, very, very 1930s dated look. And Boring started on the strip as as one of Joe's uh, assistants back in 1939, I believe, 38 to 39. So he really had that 1950s look of Superman running in the air. So he had it down perfect. But like Dick Sprang, who was a very good friend, um, his approach to Batman was as opposite of Neil's approach to Batman as humanly possible. Two of them did not overlap. Um, Kurt and everybody else did come to I wound up getting, in 86, the first day I, I hit the office, Dick says, Listen, I'd like you to do me a favor. I look at him go, a favor. He says, Yeah, yeah, I'm your boss. I can order you to do this. But I'm asking you, I'm asking nicely. I said, Before you order. So yeah. What? Says, we have this license for mask the toys. We did a miniseries and it was very successful. We'd like to do an ongoing series. Can you relaunch mask? And then after an issue or two, you know, hand it over to one of your staff. Because I had a whole, I had three editors who were working under me. Hundreds now. Long size. In the same building. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Bobby Greenberg really deserved a good shot at being one So, you know, I took it for that reason, but I told Dick because I wasn't going to just take the job because he asked me nicely. You know, I got to make it funny. So I'll take it on two conditions. And he looks at me and says, Two conditions. Like, look, I'm your boss, pal. He says, Yeah. The first is that we get Kurt Swan to pencil. And he looks at me and says, Yeah, that's perfect. And he not only is he right, but he gives him work. The second was that Kurt Schaffenberg. Because with that property, it was fine. It was the right people for the job. Um, Mike Flesher was writing it, um, but he wasn't writing it the way he wrote, you know, Jonah Hex or the Spectre. So, you know, I mean, that's the approach. The approach is you have an assignment, be it Superman or the Flash or whatever, but you get the right talent to do the right job. Now, nobody knows what the right job is. Anybody who says, oh, yeah, this is going to be a surefire hit. <laughs> They're idiots. They're idiots. You know, don't go swimming with them, because if, if you have a problem, <laughs> it's your state. But... Uh, Excuse me, one second. Bless you. Sorry about that. You can have that. Yeah. Or, or just put it on the loop. Uh, <laughs> that's the whole interview right there. That's it. Yeah. That's a gag. Yeah. But that's the approach. You know, the right people to who know how to tell a story 
who have an appreciation for what the audience wants out of them. Not out of a comic book, but out of them. And that was the big difference between how comic books were produced before that and after that. And that's something, of course, obviously, I learned in first comics. I was about to say, at first, how did you build the team that you had? Because it seemed like, it, like you said before, it was the right people in the right positions because everything clicked. I had a mastermind. Okay. Which implies I had an attention span. <laughs> you don't necessarily have to have both. But I did have a plan. The plan was we would start off with a title that was based on something people knew about, but in all other respects, it would kind of look like like a really good Marvel comic. Mm-hmm. And that was work. Yeah. With Frank Brunner. Frank had made a big thing about a year or two earlier uh, where he had quit Marvel very loudly and he'd had it with the comics business and every reason he decided was, was accurate. I mean, I couldn't fight with that. So I call him up and say, so you want ABC yeah. Okay, let's do that. Right guy for the job. Peter Gillis wrote it, Marvel writer. Did a good job. Did a good job. My second was going to be to, was to revive a fan favorite product because in direct sales, you sell comics to the retail, who in turn sells it to the customer, to the reader. Um, so we we picked up the rights to email. We bought outright the rights to email with the provision that we were going to be turning those rights over to Joe, Joe Staten. Uh, Nick Cuddy as, as well, but that was really up to Joe mm-hmm. uh, because Nick was on staff at DC and he couldn't participate in the events at that time. Uh, but people knew Joe, they loved Joe's work, and they loved his work on email, and we brought it back when we made it a little bit more contemporary. Um, old-time fans of email, some of them might say that we made it too contemporary and we lost the essence of email. I don't think we did, but in places we went right up to that one. Um, which I think, in retrospect, was probably the right way to do it, but that was part of the plan. The third was going to be taking an established talent and give that person a brand new project. Let them create a brand new project, something nobody ever heard of. People had heard of work, whether they saw it or not. People read email, but nobody knew John Sable Freelance. And they knew Mike is mostly a fantasy writer and artist, not this hardcore. Now, I've known Mike since 76. So I've known Mike for, for five years. And I knew the depths of his experience. Um, for a long time, I thought it would be really kind of cool to see who had the bigger gun collection, him or Larry Hummel. <laughs> but, uh, and he, and, but he knew him, he wasn't a gun nut. I mean, he isn't a gun nut. He, he knows his stuff. And he's very respectful of that. And um, I'm, a, I'm a city boy, so I needed to learn that. Not about Mike, but about Earth. You know, because it's so easy to just indulge in the cliches. 
So, and Mike had over the years helped me understand that. And I thought John Sable was perfect for him, for the market, and for my game plan. We said project number three, a well established, well known talent doing something brand new. The fourth was um, a revival type project uh, with brand new talent, taking characters that people knew about, in this case, Star Slinger. And bringing in people like um, John Ostrander to write it, and um, one in Del Sol, who went on to become a brilliant painter, like Google and Instables, and Hilary Bardo, and uh, most specifically Timothy Trove. The fifth project was. To be something that just nobody had ever seen before, just 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 way out of life. And in this case, the word left is probably accurate. Howard Chaikin, American Flyer. I've joked about this subsequently, but Howard's career could be put into three phases. The first phase is he's ahead of his time. The second phase was American flag. And the third was, hey, wasn't American flag great? <laughs> <laughs> At the Baltimore Con, which is my favorite convention, a couple of years ago, a bunch of us were just babbling on the floor. And uh, Howard said, this is what I want on my tombstone. This long thing. And I said, Howard, I hate to to do this, but it's way too long. I I can do something better. And he says, you're always at it. He says, yeah. He says, okay, come on. All right, put on your tombstone. Am I ahead of my time now? <laughs> uh, he still is. You, you look at his work. I mean, it's in some ways, it's much more personal. Certainly the Hey Kids comics and things. Um, but I think Black Kiss was too. I mean, <laughs> you know, he continued to evolve. Um, but uh, you know, it's going to be American flag that people are going to are going to remember the, the most. After that was a coup de grace. It was a brand new project that didn't look like anything anybody had ever done before by people you never heard. By newcomers, essentially newcomers. And we got Mark Wheatley and Mark Temple in Mars. We set both of them up in their careers, and it was brilliant. Led to Breathtaker, which was even brillianter, which we did over at DC maybe several years later, uh, and, and is now part of the Norman Rockwell Museum's. Um, traveling show about graphic novels um which which is seriously very seriously so we did marks and then the next and final step in my master plan to conquer the world was a spin-off that was grimjack because he was back up in the stars and that's what that's what First Comics was about. Nexus and the Badger came along because Capital City Comics went bluey, 
and um, those projects along Whistler um, needed a home and deserved a home. So we provided that out of the graciousness of our hearts, and also they sold really well. <laughs> but besides Badger Nexus, were there ever any other independent books that you would have loved to have brought into your stable? Oh, sure. Yeah. Thousands of them. <laughs> Thousands of them. Um, far more than I could ever print. Gotcha. Um, but I do like working on something from the ground up. Yeah. With creators. My role is, as editor, my role is to be the catalyst, to work really hard at the creation of it and to add that sort of catalytic energy to it. But I can do that with, you know, half a dozen projects simultaneously. Right. We're actually doing the work. <laughs> they got that one gig. <laughs> no, the trick is never lose sight of it. These guys are working seven days a week, 12 hours a day on a, on a slow day to do their masterpiece because I help build the stage to do their work. And um, God, that was great. You've seen John, John, now John Ostranger and I were friends since we met in 1971. Uh, I, I went to a party. It was a theater party. Uh, Chicago's theater um, scene was extremely well developed in those days. I mean, guys like Joey Montana, and I mean, just an unbelievable group of people. And John was part of that. And he, uh, so I go to this party at William J. Norris's house. He just, he just died. But, but he was a brilliant stage actor, did some movie work, primarily with Stuart Gordon. But never really cared about movies. He was a stage guy, brilliant actor, best actor I'd seen on stage ever. And he and John were roommates. So I go into this party, 71. And I, I the woman who answered the door knew my name, didn't know me. She says, Oh, you're one of those comic book guys. Listen, we got a couple of comic book fans over here. Why don't, why don't I introduce you to them? And there was John and two other guys whose names I never found out <laughs> sitting on a couch, not happy. And John and I just hit it off. And five years later, he was writing more than five years later. I guess it was more like 10 years later. Mm -hmm. He was writing for me at first. That's awesome. And his, his big question after he'd finished his first script was listen i hate to bring this up but um do i get paid for this <laughs> of course you do it's work i mean maybe the fulfillment of your life's ambition but it's still work <laughs> you still got to pay for it and that's wonderful <laughs> and now like last year you, you know you go to the movies and you see the Suicide Squad, which is another project that spun off of Legends, which is our project. And there's John in the opening scene. Yep. He was a stage actor, didn't do a lot of it, although he did some very prestigious work. Um, and there he was, you know, because the director, who's the hottest director in Hollywood right now, loved John's writing. 
And when he found out that John was an actor, he said, holy crap, he's got to be in, in the Suicide Squad movie. That was wonderful. It was such a wonderful movie. That worked out. And, and that's the stuff, because if you're working with your friends, or people who become your friends because of your work, you want that to happen. You know, it's not just you're making a living and you're doing some great artistic stuff. There should be more to it than that. Yeah. The value added stuff. So I'm very happy with that. That's, that's one of the proudest parts of my, my life. Well, one thing that I, I have to thank you, and I, I we had the honor of speaking to Mike Grell to thank him for, is John Sable Freelance. That's a book that is very near and dear to my heart. And I think one of the most brilliant parts about that book is there's a lot of action in it, of course, but then you might have an issue that just focused on John's relationship with Mike. And you, you didn't feel like, oh, this is a, a toss away issue. Like you got yourself invested. It's just him and her talking, going back to, you know, his life. And the fact that that book can go so seamlessly into the whole arc of the stories, it really, for me, separated it from other books that are were out there at the time. Me too. Yeah. Me too. That, that's my favorite aspect. Um, I, it's, in my opinion, it's Mike's best work. It's also his the most reflective of who he is. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm happy about all of the books that we did over the first. Um, most of the books we did at DC after that, mm-hmm. but some of them were, because you know, I was director of editorial development, some of them were of very experimental nature. And some just didn't work out, but uh, uh, very few. Others more likely, such as Breathtaker, were just buried by the marketing department because it didn't have Batman in it. What was how is how did Shatter come about? Because that was one of those ones that it, it like you said before, things that are sort of ahead of their time, and it was ahead of its time. Oh, it was actually. for about a minute. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's because Mike Sands uh, is bug fuck. Uh, he's an airbrush he was an airbrush artist mm-hmm. did a lot of work for Archie over Archie Goodwin over at uh, Epic mm-hmm. so, nice. I was familiar with this stuff he was a Chicago kid and he saw that very first Macintosh which today would be thought of as lead weight <laughs> but in 1984 it was a miracle because of the graphic interface. Mm. Slow by today's standards, very little power. And he said, that's my next brush. Okay, pal. What do you, can you do with it? He did like about half a dozen pages of sample continuity, not really about shatter necessarily, just what he could do. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at these printouts of this stuff. This is before there were even laser printers. Uh, I mean, laser printers came along a couple of months later, which, which made it all the better. But he could tell the story with a computer. 
and nobody was using computers. Very people owned computers, and a lot of people were scared by them. You know, computers. Oh my God, that's you know IBM. That's what you use to those the man from Uncle use to take over the world. I mean, these are computers. Um, no, no, no. They're for comic books. And the folks at Apple were amazed. Never thought that anybody could do anything like that. At that moment in their time, they didn't help us because much under the table because they were trying to sell themselves as a business machine as well as a consumer machine. And um, the the whole comic book thing made me a little squeamish. Okay. You know, that's fine. We sold about a million and a half copies of that first shadow. Peter wrote it uh, and did a lot of work to help keep Mike kind of on schedule and things like that. As did I, as did Rick Oliver, who was, the, who was at that point my uh, social editor. And um, it was a lot of work, but boy, it was worth it. And we'll talk about new ground. That was all virgin land. Yeah. Every bit of it, every dot on the paper. Excellence, they call them. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Stuff that we take for granted today didn't exist the day before we started Shatter. And that's that's amazing. It's an amazing thing to be part of. I I am so um grateful to Mike for that. Yeah. And to Peter and also, to the people at, at to the money people at First Comics who greenlit it, because, well, maybe I didn't give them much of a choice. Democracy uh, <laughs> starts at home. <laughs> Another thing you guys were doing at first that really kind of set things forward uh, going on is you're using really nice paper, high gloss design. The color was beautiful. And you know you had the dollar or one twenty five price, but people didn't. Nobody flinched at that price because they knew what they were getting right going to be worth it. You weren't getting ripped off when you were getting a first book. Yeah, we were. You could just flip through it at the comic book store and and stop thinking this is a lot of money. Yeah, because it was good looking stuff. We had some brilliant. Color, colorists, color artists at home today, and that's fair. Um, and I'm still in touch with, with all of those people who are still alive, which is almost all of those people. Um, these are with lifelong friends. Julia Lockman, who I brought over to DC, among everybody else. Um, I was just uh, writing to her today on, on you know, Facebook. I mean, we're still really good friends. And they brought that, that, that color stuff. Bruce Patterson was, was our, um, well, Joe Staten was our art director. Bruce Patterson was our production manager. Both knew their stuff. Bruce really knew color. And you know how to print color. So uh, I would take his advice to heart when he'd say, you know, it might be better if we did this. Because it might. Let's do that. You know, uh, building a good crew, a good staff, and it doesn't matter what you're doing, um, is, is crucial. It's critical. 
And and we most of us knew at least at most times that it was a it was an uphill battle. There'd be tough days, and there'd be some emotionally straining days, particularly once the distributors stopped paying in a timely fashion. That was wrong. Um, but during my tenure at first, at least, I'm commenting after that because it wasn't fair. They lost all their talent to DC for some reason. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, uh, you got to have a good crew. Yeah. You got to know what you're doing. And also, you, you need a, a screen decor. Mm. We're fighting those people. We're not mad at this but we're trying to teach the world that came to believe after a ton of hard work that a comic book had the word marble. That was what a comic book was. And it was our job to say, no, it's also this, which DC couldn't really do at that time, because they were they, they were anchored down by the weight of their their own legacy, um, which gratefully was able to help change. Um, but I'll tell you that whole thing started New Year's Eve, nineteen seventy three. I think I've told the story. I was in Montreal at a Woolworths. Remember Woolworths? I liked Woolworths. One in Montreal was like all the other Woolworths, except all the signs were in French. And I'm, they have a graphic novel section. They'd like these magazine racks with these graphic novels. They were all in French. Well, that makes sense. You're in Quebec. <laughs> you, can, you can do that. But me, I'm looking at stuff I heard of some of these people. I've seen certain individual pages reprinted in different places. But I'm looking at all of this Giroud and Juliet, and I'm looking at the stuff and saying, we invented this medium. Why can't we do stuff like this? Well, you know, if you try hard enough and you have no sense of reality, you can do that. There you go. <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> That's the reason why First comics became first comics. And, and I'm glad I was able to bring a lot of that energy and certainly the, that operating philosophy over to DC. Uh, they had, by this point in time, they had, you know, the older guys were gone. Um, they had really good people who, were, who had a clue, at least, that it was 1986 and not. Nineteen thirty-five. <laughs> I, I, I'm lucky enough, fortunate enough, uh, blessed enough to have uh, among my friends Nikki, Nikki Wheeler Nicholson, whose grandfather started what became DC Comics. He published, you know, the original North Fun Comics and Adventure Comics and Detective Comics. He started that whole thing, and. Nobody said the stuff that had never happened before can't evolve until Frederick Wortham came in. And then Frederick Wortham says, 
It's not going to evolve. It's going to die. Everybody played it very safe. Almost all the publishers went out of business. Marvel hung in there by the skin of its teeth. They actually stopped buying new material for several months, fired all of the staff except for Stan and a production guy. And, you know, Archie and DC were still around and Dell was still around. How they did business was totally different in terms of the distribution and stuff. Uh, Charlton was Charlton was around because you know the mob thought it was funny, and uh, <laughs> you know Harvey was around doing four hundred different Richie Rich titles, which I made fun of. Except for now with Batman and the X Men, I, I it's not a joke anymore. <laughs> it's a way of life. So there goes that joke. But you know. It did go out of business, almost, almost. And then Donenfeld said, let's try superheroes again. To which I'm sure somebody said, well, you know, Marvel tried it. They did a relaunch of their superheroes, their big three. And other people had tried to renew stuff. Uh, Charlton did Captain Adam in the late 50s, you know. And nobody was successful at reinventing the superhero, including Captain America and Submariner and Human Torch. Um, so Donnerfeld said, let's bring back our characters, but let's bring them up to date. And Julie went and got, gave us Barry Allen Flash and Hal Jordan Remake. And that type of attitude for what Julie was doing, I'm not comparing myself to Julie Schwartz, but Harlan Ellison did. <laughs> One of the great moments of my life. Um, that philosophy is what I brought back to DC. I'm very with malice of work, and some people knew exactly uh, because we're all fans here. So and they understood that. And, and that was great. That was a wonderful opportunity. It's just looking at the world, or at least the business place, just a little differently. That's how I look at the world. Well, part of that is also you took some of those older heroes and you brought them in with the impact line. Um, yeah, well, the Archie heroes. Yeah, yeah, the Archie heroes. And I really, there's a lot more people now who are appreciating the impact line because, you know, in a time of the hologram covers and the guys with the giant muscles and the splash pages galore. These were, I want to say, a breath of fresh air because they were just comics. They were telling a story about superheroes. Um, it was you know, like an old school approach that I felt, and this is just my personal opinion, is that DC did not push those books like they could have. I think. Well, let me affirm your personal opinion. The project was created by a guy named Matt Ragone, who was the newsstand sales director, and me. Because we were having a conversation, probably over lunch, because we were on expensive. <laughs> and uh, said, you know, we need these kids. We need to bring back the kids. We need something that they can understand without having to buy 400 different books and just straight out superhero stories. But not so that they would bore the 
the mainstream reader, we want to have our cake and eat it too. And, and we designed the line to do exactly that. And then halfway through, Matt takes this job over at Marvel, where he's sales director at Marvel. And the guy who's running marketing, the head of marketing, a guy named Bruce Bristow, um, hated because people like Capital City, distribution company, told him that they didn't want comic books for kids. They didn't want to bring kids into the comic book series. And that was not universally shared, but it was by a couple of the big distributors. Mm -hmm. And he believed that. And so he had this big meeting with Dick Giordano's office with him and me and his assistant, uh, Bob Wayne, and my assistant, uh, Brian Augustine. And Bruce is just screaming his head off, saying, nobody will ever see these comic books. You might as well cancel them right now. Because we're not doing comics for kids. He took it personally because the whole DC, not just for kids anymore, thing in the little UPC boxes, he that was his. <laughs> so he took it as an insult. It's not. It's it's Hector Cake and Egypt too. Um, so we were obligated to tell everybody who's involved that we might be on a hopeless mission here. Mm -hmm. Not a single talent quit. One or two of the editors did. <laughs> they saw queers. And I got that. I was a little disappointed because um, I tend to be kind of a fighter, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I think it's more popularly referred to as a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, you don't have, a, I mean, this was so stunning. Bruce's pronouncement was so vile, loud, and evil that Bob Wayne, who was not an un, a disloyal person, mm -hmm. came back after Bruce left, came back and apologized for Bruce. Now, if Bruce ever hears this, he would fire Bob, except for the fact that neither of them work there nor have for a long time. <laughs> so I, I feel okay saying this now. Mm -hmm. I, I can't begin to tell you how proud I am of all of the talent who worked on those projects because they gave it their all. Mm -hmm. And they knew that at best it was a very severe Grade to quote. Some of those talents, Bill Loeb's, Mark Wade, Rick Burchett. I mean, it goes on and on. There's so many talented, they said, people who stuck by and it showed. Fairbank, Tom Lyle. I mean, jeez, mm -hmm. we had some, some uh, Tom Artis. Mm -hmm. um, we had some brilliant, brilliant, brilliant people. And we had our own art director, Mike, Mike Golden, who was our art director. Um, and he did a fabulous job, which doesn't surprise me. He also had the same attitude in life as, as I do. Right. He still does. So uh, that probably scared people. <laughs> did he you play a great practical joke on me once? I was, he's from Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And I was leaving D.C. to go to a convention in Nebraska. 
And just before I go downstairs, you know, to go to the airport, Mike comes up to me and says, um, did I ever mention to you that I'm still wanted for gun sales in Nebraska? There's no, you, oddly enough, you never mentioned that. And he says, yeah, well, I just thought you should know because, you know, Mike Gold, Mike Golden, comic books, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Great guy to work with. <laughs> I love seeing him. We, we hang out at conventions and, and still screw around with each other. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Did you get the sense that... Man conflicts. What'd you say? The Peter... Peter Pan complex. Oh, yes. Syndrome. We won't grow up. Right. Stay the same age. That's right. There's this inner, you know, 14-year-old inside of me who's been paying the rent for a millennium now. <laughs> God bless him. <laughs> with, with DC... When they acquire properties from a different source, like they did with Impact, and a few years earlier they did from Charlton with you know the question and Blue Beetle and stuff, did you do you feel there's a hesitancy to spotlight those characters because they are not original DC creations? In the older days, yes, and that hung on for a long, long time, and probably still is part of the equation but a very very small part and down to a point where it's okay it's okay to be proud of your heritage right. to to have it close all these doors for you that's wrong right. but but now it's at a reasonable level it has been for a while yeah i think so when ec comics went out of business in the mid-50s all of the greatest talent in comic books at that time mm-hmm. were looking for work you know, Al Williamson, Wally Wood. You can't just, the list goes on and on. Just the most brilliant artists we've ever seen. And none of them could get work at DC because they were DC Comics. And that mentality hung on for a long time. It was what I had to fight in the 70s. Uh, Murray Boltonoff, who's a great guy, and he and I shared a background a generation apart because he got to start in journalism in Chicago, as did I. Mm-hmm. Well, journalism and radio, but I don't know if they had radio back then when he was a kid. <laughs> and, uh, we're, so we're talking, and I really love the guy. But he was really wedded to the old philosophies, as you can tell from reading his books. Um, he intuitively understood what Marvel was about. If you look at like um, Inferior Five, you'd realize he intuitively understood what 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 Marvel was about, but he didn't know he understood it. He didn't think it was. Okay. He thought that the DC way was it, mm-hmm. and everybody else is an upstart. And I said, "So you think that Marvel's just a fad?" He says, "Yeah, it's just." And I said, like the Beatles. And he says, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Um, I respect and admire his work. Um, but 
you know, DC was a survivor. It wasn't the best-selling boss it outsold them. Um, Captain Marvel was a much bigger character during the 40s than Superman, and even Superman had a better serial, too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Marvel had hung on there. It wasn't a big, big player, but they were a survivor. And so the folks who survived were from the folks who survived the death of all of the competition except for a small hand. They thought they were onto something. I get that. I probably would too. Mm-hmm. But these are also the people who, when they went home at night, they told their neighbors that they were in the commercial art business, they were in the comic book business. So, well, given that moment in time back in the 50s, back in the working days, I don't fault them for that because the comics people were child pornographers mm-hmm. on a good day. Yeah. As opposed to the ones who really were, I can only read two or three of them. <laughs> who I won't mention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to be, uh, you know, mindful of your time. I, I'd love to have you back on because it, I, there's so much more to talk about. But as a fan and as someone who loved First Comics, loved Impact, and so many things you worked on, I there's not enough thank yous for the risks you took. And, you know, putting there's always a mentality with the, the produce you worked on of putting the fans first um, and putting out the best product possible, not just trying to fill a quota. But there was a there was a quality and a love that really came through in, in everything you worked on. Well, thank you for that. First of all, that means a lot to me. Um, and I'm, I'm really Belling, they call it in New York. Um, it's very, it's very nice. Uh, thank you for that. Um, but I just like getting in trouble. <laughs> An inner 14 year old, he can be a brat. <laughs> the adult in me knows how to make him a brat for good. That's right. Direct it in the right direction. That's right. That's all you got to do. <laughs> I would love to do a follow-up if you like. Just just let me know. And of course, we'll work it out and have a lot of pulse starts and stuff. But that's just who I am. Not a problem. And uh, where was a good place for fans to keep up with what you're up to or social media or anything like that? Uh, I have been writing for uh, um, Pop Culture Squad, but that got... Uh, be proud of them in terms of my time. I love writing more than almost anything else. I love, I just love writing. So I, I would like to get back to it. I probably will. But Bob Harrison, who I mentioned before, Bob and I are going to start up a, a podcast because uh, people don't read. <laughs> you listen. So we're going to start up a comics podcast. Um, in fact, we're, we're that, that Tom King, Mike Grell, in her uh, panel. We're going to cut that up and use that as sort of some of the beginning stuff of the podcast. Um, that will will start pretty soon. I, I think we'll certainly be the end of the year. I hope. I hope. I'm assuming Russia doesn't bomb us. Yeah, fingers crossed. And we're back. Uh, another great interview, Orn. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's not like 
anyone's ever going to say, oh, it's just an only or an only interview and it sucks. No one's ever said that. that. Maybe they do in their minds. I don't know. No, Why no. are we even here, Joe? Something I don't know. Question. That's a good question. You know what, guys? Signing off. No. Glad some <laughs> Uh, but seriously, great interview. Um, you know, uh, what I enjoy about your your interviews, Orn, specifically, is, you know, you really appreciate these creators and the characters that they work on. And it shows. Um, Mike Gold has had a pretty uh, interesting career. He's worked with some great talent. Um, you know, Mike Barron, Steve Rude, uh, Mike Grell, one of your favorites. Uh, but I don't need to tell you that. You know who you love. <laughs> and... Uh... You know, he does a lot for his community as well. He's uh, genuinely a nice guy. And he was somebody that was very high up on the target list when we started. It took a while for us to, to settle on a date, but we did. And I'm so glad that we did uh, get to speak to Mike. Kudos to you, Orrin. Another great uh, solo interview. Uh, kudos to Mike Gold for a stellar career, including that influential founding of First Comics, uh, which was amazing. All of the books, you can definitely check them out. I, I don't think there was a dud in there. Um, and I wish it had lasted it even longer than it did. But that'll do it for another episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe if you want to help us grow. And we will see you next time. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Orrin Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos. <laughs>